The Essential Destiny of Reason, Subsection 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction to The Philosophy of History by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. The Essential Destiny of Reason The inquiry into the essential destiny of reason, as far as it is considered in reference to the world, is identical with the question, what is the ultimate design of the world? And the expression implies that that design is destined to be realized, Two points of consideration suggest themselves. First, the import of this design, its abstract definition, and secondly, its realization. It must be observed at the outset that the phenomenon we investigate, universal history, belongs to the realm of spirit. The term world includes both physical and psychical nature. Physical nature also plays its part in the world's history, and attention will have to be paid to the fundamental natural relations thus involved. But spirit, and the course of its development, is our substantial object. Our task does not require us to contemplate nature as a rational system in itself, though in its own proper domain it proves itself such, but simply in its relation to spirit. On the stage on which we are observing it, universal history, spirit displays itself in its most concrete reality. Notwithstanding this, or rather for the very purpose of comprehending the general principles which this, its form of concrete reality, embodies, we must premise some abstract characteristics of the nature of spirit. Such an explanation, however, cannot be given here under any other form than that of bare assertion. The present is not the occasion for unfolding the idea of spirit speculatively. For whatever has a place in an introduction must, as already observed, be taken as simply historical, something assumed as having been explained and proved elsewhere, or whose demonstration awaits the sequel of the science of history itself. We have therefore to mention here, first, the abstract characteristics of the nature of spirit, second, what means spirit uses in order to realize its idea, and third, lastly we must consider the shape which the perfect embodiment of spirit assumes the state. First, the nature of spirit may be understood by a glance at its direct opposite, matter. As the essence of matter is gravity, so, on the other hand, we may affirm that the substance, the essence of spirit, is freedom. 
all will readily assent to the doctrine that spirit, among other properties, is also endowed with freedom. But philosophy teaches that all the qualities of spirit exist only through freedom, that all are but means for attaining freedom, that all seek and produce this and this alone. It is a result of speculative philosophy that freedom is the sole truth of spirit. Matter possesses gravity in virtue of its tendency towards a central point. It is essentially composite, consisting of parts that exclude each other. It seeks its unity, and therefore exhibits itself as self-destructive, as verging towards its opposite, an indivisible point. If it could attain this, it would be matter no longer, it would have perished. It strives after the realization of its idea, for in unity it exists ideally. Spirit, on the contrary, may be defined as that which has its center in itself. It has not a unity outside itself, but has already found it. It exists in and with itself. Matter has its essence out of itself. Spirit is self-contained existence. Now, this is freedom, exactly. For, if I am dependent, my being is referred to something else which I am not. I cannot exist independently of something external. I am free, on the contrary, when my existence depends upon myself. This self-contained existence of spirit is none other than self-consciousness, consciousness of one's own being. Two things must be distinguished in consciousness. First, the fact that I know. Secondly, what I know. In self-consciousness, these are merged in one. For spirit knows itself. It involves an appreciation of its own nature, as also an energy enabling it to realize itself, to make itself actually that which it is potentially. According to this abstract definition, it may be said of universal history that it is the exhibition of spirit in the process of working out the knowledge of that which it is potentially. And as the germ bears in itself the whole nature of the tree, and the taste and form of its fruits, so do the first traces of spirit virtually contain the whole of that history. The Orientals have not attained the knowledge that spirit, man as such, is free. And because they do not know this, they are not free. They only know that one is free, but on this very account the freedom of that one is only caprice, ferocity, brutal recklessness of passion, or a mildness and tameness of the desires, which is itself only an accident of nature, mere caprice like the former. That one is therefore only a despot, not a free man. The consciousness of freedom first arose among the Greeks, and therefore they were free, but they, and the Romans likewise, 
knew only that some are free, not man as such. Even Plato and Aristotle did not know this. The Greeks, therefore, had slaves, and their whole life and the maintenance of their splendid liberty was implicated with the institution of slavery, a fact, moreover, which made that liberty on the one hand only an accidental, transient, and limited growth, on the other hand, constituted it a rigorous thraldom of our common nature, of the human. The German nations, under the influence of Christianity, were the first to attain the consciousness that man, as man, is free. That it is the freedom of spirit which constitutes its essence. This consciousness arose first in religion, the inmost region of spirit. But to introduce the principle into the various relations of the actual world involves a more extensive problem than its simple implantation, a problem whose solution and application require a severe and lengthened process of culture. In proof of this, we may note that slavery did not cease immediately on the reception of Christianity, Still less did liberty predominate in states, or governments and constitutions adopt a rational organization, or recognize freedom as their basis. That application of the principle to political relations, the thorough molding and interpenetration of the constitution of society by it, is a process identical with history itself. I have already directed attention to the distinction here involved between a principle as such and its application, that is, its introduction and carrying out in the actual phenomena of spirit and life. This is a point of fundamental importance in our science, and one which must be constantly respected as essential. And, in the same way as this distinction has attracted attention in view of the Christian principle of self-consciousness, freedom, it also shows itself as an essential one in view of the principle of freedom generally. The history of the world is none other than the progress of the consciousness of freedom, a progress whose development according to the necessity of its nature it is our business to investigate. The general statement given above of the various grades in the consciousness of freedom, and which we applied in the first instance to the fact that the Eastern nations knew only that one is free, the Greek and Roman world only that some are free, whilst we know that all men absolutely, man as man, are free, supplies us with the natural division of universal history, and suggests the mode of its discussion. This is remarked, however, only incidentally and anticipatively. Some other ideas must be first explained. The destiny of the spiritual world, and, since this is the substantial world, while the physical remains subordinate to it, or, in the language of speculation, has no truth as against the spiritual, the final cause of the world at large, we allege to be the consciousness of its own freedom, 
on the part of spirit, and, ipso facto, the reality of that freedom. But that this term, freedom, without further qualification, is an indefinite and incalculable, ambiguous term, and that, while that which it represents is the nuplus ultra of attainment, it is liable to an infinity of misunderstandings, confusions, and errors, and to become the occasion for all imaginable excesses, has never been more clearly known and felt than in modern times. Yet, for the present, we must content ourselves with the term itself without farther definition. Attention was also directed to the importance of the infinite difference between a principle in the abstract and its realization in the concrete. In the process before us, the essential nature of freedom, which involves in it absolute necessity, is to be displayed as coming to a consciousness of itself, for it is in its very nature self-consciousness, and thereby realizing its existence. Itself is its own object of attainment, and the sole aim of spirit. This result it is at which the process of the world's history has been continually aiming, and to which the sacrifices that have ever and anon been laid on the vast altar of the earth through the long lapse of ages, have been offered. This is the only aim that sees itself realized and fulfilled, the only pole of repose amid the ceaseless change of events and conditions, and the sole efficient principle that pervades them. This final aim is God's purpose with the world, but God is the absolutely perfect being, and can, therefore, will nothing other than himself, his own will. The nature of his will, that is, his nature itself, is what we here call the idea of freedom, translating the language of religion into that of thought. The question, then, which we may next put, is... What means does this principle of freedom use for its realization? This is the second point we have to consider. End The Essential Destiny of Reason Subsection 1 The Abstract Characteristics of the Nature of Spirit This recording is in the public domain.